Hey there, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker Podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe today or ask Alexa to play the Big Time Talker with Burke Allen and magically will appear right out of that little dot. Hey, we're in Washington, D.C., and the podcast is brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or if you're a keynote speaker, Get together at speakermatch.com. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, kids, with one of my favorite people who's been working with kids for over two decades now. Beth Hughes, you have so many initials after your name. I don't even begin to know what all of those mean, but suffice to say, you've done a lot of stuff with kids down through the years. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bert. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You are, uh, along with me and my pal, one of the, the the foremost practitioners in the United States of something called play therapy. W- what is play therapy? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> play therapy um, that I use is a way for traumatized children who are very young. So some of my youngest clients are two and three years old on up to 18, 19. Uh, But it is a way for children who have been traumatized to externalize their trauma and recover from their traumatic experiences in a very safe way that allows them to use their first language, and that is play. So we can actually accomplish a lot of work therapeutically through avenues of play that don't need words. Now, when you talk about trauma, Mm -hmm. define that for me. What sort of childhood trauma can you help with play therapy? Okay. Well, I think first thing we need to talk about is there's a a little T trauma and there's a capital T trauma. Okay. We all go through our little T traumas. Um, That might be being separated uh, from a parent to go to school the first time or the first few years for some children. That's a little T trauma. Um, The Getting our first haircut, being potty trained, being weaned can be little T traumas that we universally all go through. Capital T traumas are going to be the ones that surpass our capacity to understand what's happening to us. Uh, These are going to be experiences that some children may take pretty well and not have adverse reaction to. And some children may have very adverse reactions to, like the death of a parent Um, a parent choosing um, prescription drugs or any substance of addiction over them, Um, children who are suffering with abuse and neglect. So capital T traumas are the ones that I get involved with in therapy. And you were obviously drawn to this specific kind of therapy, but you have been a children's therapist for for many years. What, What drew you to this segment of it? And And how did you learn it even existed? I think probably a lot of people don't even know that there is such a thing as play therapy. Yeah. Well, I I tell you, I I remember the day I found out there was a a thing of play therapy, such a thing. And I was being interviewed um, to do the trauma work for a pretty large residential treatment center for children in Alabama. And the person interviewing me said, are you a registered play therapist? 
And the minute she said that, I thought, no, but man, I want to be because that makes so much sense, you know, to use play. And, um, you know, that's been, you know, uh, about a decade and a half ago. But um, I got into working with children and especially traumatized children uh, because of seeing so much trauma. You know, I started my practice in Alabama and they're we're, we're pretty parallel with West Virginia as far as the opioid crisis. And I remember I was moonlighting in graduate school. I was working at a um, shelter where small children were bought, brought immediately when there was a back then it was crack cocaine in the rural parts of Alabama. So if there was a big crack cocaine bust, we would get a slew of these little ones in and I was working the graveyard shift, so I got a lot of a lot of work done at night. And I noticed these children were very, very hard to soothe. They were um, you just couldn't calm them down. And some babies could scream for hours on end without tiring. And so I didn't know it then, but I was looking at the um, uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome (NAS syndrome) in very young children whose mothers had abused drugs um, during their pregnancies. So it kind of piqued my interest. I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to know what that was going to look like at three, at six, at puberty, in teen years and beyond. You know, how was this child going to suffer and what could we do to help them? Beth uses our guest today. We're talking about children's play therapy. And Beth is the big cheese, the big kahuna of the West Virginia Power of Play Therapy Center in my hometown of Logan, West Virginia. She's worked in and spoken all over the country about play therapy. Um, you mentioned the crack cocaine epidemic, uh, and, and now it's opioids in many parts of the country. Is that what's driving so much childhood trauma now, is, is uh, moms and dads and, and drug addiction? I would say in pockets of our country, yes. Um, rural areas who have uh, a lot of people who make their living by laboring in coal mines or timber timber mills or steel factories or these were hard hit by uh, big pharma to pass along these drugs is pretty harmless and non-addictive and so what we have is huge pockets of populations especially in our beloved West Virginia Burke that uh, have so many coal miners, and yes, I would say, I would say, ninety-five percent of the children I see, there is addiction of some sort somewhere in their immediate family. So, uh, to play devil's advocate here, and I have seen some of the work you do, and I think it's amazing. I, I just Thank have you, to tell Brian. you, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, you know, to play devil's advocate, I wonder what it is that you can find from playing with a little one that you can't find from talking with a little one? Well, I have toys in this uh, playroom of mine, playrooms of mine that I've collected for the past 20 years. And those toys are specifically selected to help a child who may not be able to tell me that mommy is passed out all day uh, because she's partying all night, right? But the child has a dollhouse that they can play in and they can 
I can, I can ask the child, well, who is this and what is she doing? And what, and a lot of times it is mommy is sleeping and I might have a six-year-old child taking care of a newborn child while mommy is sleeping during the day. And they will act that out in the playroom. Uh, so a dollhouse is very important. Another thing I have is um, drug paraphernalia in very small sizes um, that resemble what they see in their home. I've had children show me in my play kitchen how to make a meth lab. Oh, wow. And that child might be five or six years old. Um, I have a I have children that will tell me after we kind of find the words to describe what's happening. Um, they won't say daddy left me out in the yard and locked me out of the house so he could go buy drugs. But what they will say is daddy locks me out of the house and I get to play with the dogs outside by myself like a big girl while daddy goes and gets the leaves that he crushes up. Mm. So I've had little children dry leaves on the oven in the playroom. Um, it's amazing how they want to naturally externalize these experiences. Um, the younger we can reach them, the less guarded they are. So that that's I'm really proud of West Virginia just in the past year or so has really included three-year-olds um, for psychotherapeutic services in the state. And I think it's, I think that's a phenomenal idea. But what I found was that our state was really ill-prepared with trained clinicians on how to handle three-year-olds in therapy. So that's why I got the, uh, the idea for West Virginia Power Play in Logan to train therapists with their clients. And, and are these therapists that work with kids, are they uh, trained in other forms of childhood therapy and play therapy is sort of another arrow in their quiver, so to speak? Well, and if we look at if we look at West Virginia in the in the universities that offer master's level uh, training in counseling or clinical social work, there are no play therapy courses being offered right now. So I have a population of supervisees who know that they know they need play, kind of like I did when I first found out about it. You know, you, you hear that and you're like, why has nobody told me about this? Um, so they know they need play therapy training. And Burke, I've got folks that their agencies they work with are paying for their training. And then I've got folks who are, who are paying out of their own pocket um, to get the training and credentialing they need to work with these very young clients. Well, so here's why I asked that question, and and it comes from uh, a pure place, but it may come across as, as a really silly question, but these are little kids, and little kids have big imaginations. And so my thought is, if you're a, a, a therapist, and you don't know what you're doing, and you have kids play, and a kid mm -hmm. makes up a fantastical story about something that has no basis in reality, pretty soon mm -hmm. uh, an innocent mommy or daddy could get you know, hauled off to the can for something that didn't really happen. Do you Actually, understand what I'm talking about? I, not only do I understand it, I see it. Um, and I see it a lot. And so what, you know, a big thing we learn as play therapists is the, the theme of a child's play and that we want to see repeated. If it's, if it's like that fantastical imagination at work, that's one thing. Or they may be recreating something they saw on television right. or, you know, on a YouTube video, you know, innocently. Um, but 
usually that's not a play they're going to repeat over and over and over. And so we have some physiological symptoms that we know to look for if we're seeing uh, this thematic play repeating itself. So it's, it's almost like you're exactly right. It can be a completely fabricated story of the imagination that might have been planted in a very unlikely way, not in their home, literally happening in their home. But it's different when it's actually happening and how the kid brings that to the play therapy um, room. I'll give you an example. Okay. I had a little girl, three years old, and she would come in the playroom and every week I would see her. She was uh, removed from her home because of drugs. And, and, and we knew there were drugs in the home, but she's only three, right? So we, um, you know, I had the drug paraphernalia out. I had teddy bears out and every other kind of toy out. And she would go and get that basket of the drug paraphernalia. She would dump it in the middle of the floor. And then she would proceed to play with all the other normal toys children would play with. And she would do that at the start of every session. She did that for six weeks. And I came to understand in this child's play that this wasn't just a fluke that she saw on TV. This was her world. And um, the drugs were in the middle of her world. And she was having to find things to play with on the periphery of those drugs in the middle of the, of the playroom floor. And I think that's probably the key, right? You, you or the therapist that you train have got to be able to separate the wheat from the shaft there and figure out what's real and what's not. Exactly. And it, and that's why this special training with all those letters after your name uh, <laughs> is, is pretty important because, um, you know, our traumas intersect and you might have a therapist. A lot of us therapists go into becoming a therapist because we've had our own trauma and we tend to look very narrowly to, you know, because we might have a sacred contract we've made with ourselves. And that might be, you know, this this trauma happened to me and I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen or, you know, to any of the children I'm working with. So that therapist, without a lot of training and work, might have a myopic view of what they're seeing and really transferring their own experiences onto that child unbeknowing, you know, to them. So this training this level of credentialing is vitally important to getting it right do most school counselors in elementary school middle school high school do they have play therapy training minimal um very minimal but I, i'm going to brag on our on our home counties in uh, southern west virginia i've been working with lincoln and logan counties and they are sending their therapist and I'm, they're asking me to do trainings. Uh, it's just been a wonderful partnership. So what I find is people who work with children and see these things firsthand, don't, they're not just reading about it in school. They are wildly um, anxious to get more training and understand and at least be more trauma-informed in working with their young clients. So we're moving in the right direction, but we're not quite there. If if you're interested and you're listening, we'll uh, post all the contact information for the West Virginia Power Play Therapy Center uh, on the homepage for the podcast, and, uh, and Beth can get back to you if you're interested in that training. Um, you've talked about little girls. Does it does it stick better with 
little girls and little boys? What's the difference in working with girls and boys? Well, it, it's a huge difference. Uh, right now, in my caseload, I'm seeing more little boys than I am little girls. Um, if you and Burke, you may have this in your life experience. I don't know, but um, Bob certainly has it in his. My husband, Bob Noon. It, if girls say about seven thousand words a day, okay, right. on average, boys say about three thousand words a day. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what little girls do is typically will come in and spill it. They will. <laughs> Chatty Cathy's. They will tell you unless they've been threatened. Um, they will they will be very open. Um, boys are very different. They will internalize things. They will uh, feel responsible to you know for keeping the family together. They will hide and you know might present like everything is okay when it's not. So boys um, need a special type of attention. Um, most of the time that girls, we, it's a little bit easier with girls. Um, so yeah, boys, uh, feeling, they tend to feel responsible for their, more responsible for their parents' addiction problems or the breakup of the family. Uh, they, they tend to take on more responsibility and probably that's a cultural thing. And especially in West Virginia where, uh, boys might be told, you know, you're not supposed to cry. You're a sissy if you cry. Right. Um, so we, we have to work through those cultural barriers. You, you mentioned Bob, uh, your husband, Bob Noon, who's one of my yeah. oldest and dearest friends. And you guys are like the, the dynamic duo of taking care of kids. <laughs> Bob Aww. is like, uh, he's, he's, you know, like the, the Batman to your Robin. He is out there on the front lines as I think probably the leading uh, foster care and adoption attorney in that state of West Virginia. And of course you guys do a lot of work in, in Alabama as well. Um, in your estimation and having done this for a couple of decades now, what is the better of two bad scenarios? Is it for kids to go into foster care and be taken away from parents that, that have these drug addictions or other serious problems? Is it better for the kids to go to foster care or to, hang in there with bad parents, and, and to add on to that question, what does the legal system tend to do? Do they tend to keep the kids in bad situations too long? Right. I, um, <clears throat> I always want families to stay together. You know, I want, I want families to beat addiction. I want them to um, maybe, you know, even be stronger in spite of their addiction through recovery and keep families together. Problem with, the problem with drugs is um, people are desperate to get them and will, uh, you know, a young child or even a teenager growing up living day to day in a drug endangered environment is very traumatizing um, and can lead to many other abuses. So we have to first get children safe. And, you know, I would, I would say the best thing to do is there's some, is there someone in the family that can take care of these children while mom and mom or dad's getting the help they need. Um, and that I'll tell you, the state of West Virginia is doing a phenomenal job in trying to keep, you know, go to that family first, keep siblings together. They're doing all they possibly can. They've been very generous um, in, in my work, you know, referring children my way, um, getting those children the help they need, letting me work with the uh, um, mom and dad's therapist, 
So I can show them what they're doing to their children by choosing drugs over their children. Um, so, you know, we're, a lot of things are going in the right direction. Of course, we have a long way to go. I would say foster care is the last resort um, after we've exhausted family placement. But the first thing I want to do, if we have a drug endangered environment, I want that child out of it as quickly as possible until things can become safe. And, you know, maybe I use the generalization there that's not correct when I say bad parents, because these are people that have drug addictions. But damn, if if you don't see stuff on the news every week that as a parent can just make you cringe. Um, and, And if it's, you know, kids that aren't being fed or you have incest in a home or rape in a home or, you know, extreme neglect, there have to be times, I would think, Beth, when when you see things that as much as you've done this and as hardened as you get, that, mm-hmm. it, that it gets to you uh, on a personal level. And, and I wonder if, if you could speak to that. And, of course, without giving up any confidences, are there, mm-hmm. are there stories or situations or cases that either you've been involved with personally or you've supervised and other therapists have been involved with that, that got to you on a personal level and that you just brought home and couldn't shake? I, I think when I was younger, that happened more often than it does now. Um, and I, I, I supervise a, a, a broad array of um, clinicians on, on their journey. Some of them are second year grad students in their, um, you know, their master's level programs and internships all the way through PhDs who've been in practice 20 years. So I have everything from that second year grad student to that well-practiced PhD. Okay. And what I tend to see is the younger, uh, less experienced clinicians tend to suffer greatly from uh, secondary stress of this, the trauma there. They take on the traumas of the children they're working with. Uh, We'll burn out quick and we'll be ineffective very quick if we fall into that trap and don't get out of it. Um, a lot of people won't know they're in it. And so it's, it, it, in supervision, it it comes out a lot for me personally. You know, I, I think children for me to know that a child has been locked up in a closet for days on end, um, in West Virginia, I hear a lot of children of drug addicted parents being locked in an RV or a car. And left to fend for themselves, uh, locked in. That is very troubling to me, um, and I, I'm not sure why. That particularly, because I hear a whole host of horrible things that children endure. But I can only imagine that little one and how they must feel. Um, so it, it's interesting that I've kind of morphed into. I don't sleep at night if I know a child is not safe. And I wasn't at the end of the day to get that child out of a dangerous situation as hard as I might have tried. That will keep me up all night long. Um, I tend to sleep like a baby when I know everybody's safe. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's a hard job and it is not for everyone. Uh, Sometimes I think our own past traumas can really help us in this line of work. And I think it can really hinder us as well. So it's kind of the only the personal work you've done yourself is very important, you know, in your own therapeutic journey. Um, you know, why do you want to be, why do you want to do this? <laughs> yeah, that's a real good What's question. What's wrong with you? Why are what you doing this? What is wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. 
folks that start out and they start out like gangbusters and they're just doing great. And, you know, and then they hit a wall and something happens and they're just completely um, out of the business. They don't want to do it anymore. So, and yeah, I, I, I love it. Anybody who tries this, I think is brave and courageous, but it is certainly not for everyone. Beth uses our guest from the West Virginia Power Play Therapy Center in Logan, West Virginia, but she works with folks uh, all over the mid-Atlantic, southeastern United States to help them get credentialed in play therapy. And, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago, Beth, that that the the notion of therapy overall was just sort of looked on as a curiosity or something that only happened in the big cities. You know, it, Newhart, the TV show Newhart, for example, you know, it's something that we kind of laughed at and, and giggled at. Um, you know, we've, we've come a long way, and yet I'm sure that sometimes um, people give you and what you do a little bit of the side eye. <laughs> Thank yes. There's some, you know, <laughs> what voodoo you do, hocus pocus stuff going on here. Um, but having said that, you know, when kids go through serious trauma like that, if it's left unchecked, as it was for hundreds of years before the last couple of generations, you know, what can happen to these kids? How does it manifest itself if a kid gets locked, uh, you know, out in the cold for a couple of days because mom and dad are on a drug bender? You know, what does that look like when, when they grow up? Because there there will be people listening right now who I guarantee you will say, wow, kids are resilient. They're, they're not even going to remember that. They were four or five years old. You know the real deal. You've been doing this long enough. So what say you to that? Right. So I've, I'm in my third generation in a couple of families that I've worked with children in each of those generations uh, in the same family. And so um, I was probably one of those people who said, you know, kids are resilient. I've been through stuff um, and I made it and you can too. <laughs> you know, sure. uh, I think that's the philosophy that most folks of a certain um a vintage, Age. a certain vintage. Yes, a certain vintage, yes, seasoned, more seasoned folks. Um, and I, I certainly get that the historical, like the Bob Newhart stuff was, um, he worked with what we call the worried well. Um, and that's very different than traumatized children. So this is the uh, little T stuff versus the big T, T stuff. Yeah, or, or, or maybe the person who goes into therapy because they want to reflect on their life. You know, they're not really in a lot of distress, but they want to reflect and they want to, you know, get deeper meaning into their life. That's that. And that's great. That's great. But not what we're doing at West Virginia Power Play Therapy. OK, yeah. um, what we're doing are severely um, traumatized. They've witnessed murder. They've been kidnapped. They've been locked away. Uh, they've been denied food. Um They've gone extended periods of time, maybe without the ability to sleep. They have constant nightmares at night. We have bedwetting way past the time that should be over. We have highly sexualized children. Um, you And I could go on and on and on of what we're treating. So while somebody on the outside looking in might think, oh, it's play therapy. It's, it's so stupid. And why would you do that? And, you know, but it's the people who are raising these children. And if if they if you ask them, you know, when did your child start making progress and start sleeping through the night better? And when did they start thinking more logically instead of uh, they were able to learn? They were able to sit in class and learn instead of having that amygdala, that reptilian brain 
in constant engagement because they were so afraid something bad was going to happen to them again. Um, they would sing the praises of what happens um, when we reach into that developing brain of a child. You know, we have so much neuroplasticity there and so much work can be done to to help the child understand their trauma and to know it's not their fault and to understand the sense of safety and I'm safe now. You know, I think back when I was a little kid and, and I had some traumatic experiences in my life as most of us have at some point or another, sure. but I also had something that was consistently safe in my life. And that was my nuclear family of aunts and uncles who lived in my, who lived across the street from me or next door to me. And if things were getting a little wonky at my house, all I had to do was walk out and walk next door. And there's my great aunt Sadie or my great aunt Bessie. And they had food on the table and there was no yelling going on in there and everybody was fine. And I could just escape. But our problem now with so much migration and families just aren't, we don't have that support from the generations like we used to. Uh, so children have no place to escape to. And so for the people, who, the naysayers or the doubters, which I embrace, I think, you know, everybody should figure things out. And I encourage that. Um, but if you think back of when you were a child and you made it so well and you're so resilient, it's probably because you had a resilient adult in your life that you felt safe with and you had access to regularly. There was somebody, there was an advocate in there somewhere. There was, uh, you know, a teacher, there was a church choir director, there was a pastor, there was an aunt and uncle, there was somebody nearby. So, so with these kids, uh, in, in a general sense, if, if they don't get therapy, what happens? Some kids are going to be just fine. Okay. You know, some kids are going to be just fine. Um, but there, there's a great book um, written by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score really goes into how trauma is experienced in our young life, and especially, you know, birth to five. Those traumas um, may go seemingly fine or un the child is unaffected until maybe we hit puberty. And at puberty, when those hormones awaken and there are social engagement um, necessities, there's relationship, things start changing in the life of a child at puberty so drastically. Burke, I know you've been through this <laughs> with not just yourself, but your child. With both you of know? us, yes. Both of you, yeah, all of us. So we're all in this. And if that unresolved trauma might perk up again later on in life. Um, can certainly perk up again when we become parents ourselves and we don't have our, you know, early traumas attended to, we might be, you know, either a hovering, a helicopter parent or a very neglectful parent. Um, so there's, there's, like I said, there's some people that it's, it's going to be just fine and some people are going to not do so well. Um, we can predict that Chronic intensive trauma is a poor prognosis um, for outcome if we don't intervene and help the child understand um, self-regulation, uh, understand a lot of things about who they are, that they're not they're not here to be abused. 
that can often become our narrative that we were abused. So we're supposed to be abused and they will actually engage in in relationships that are likely to be abusive because they don't know any better. Well, let's put the show on the other foot for a second for folks who are listening now who uh, are not of the drug abusing parent variety, but, but, you know, they, they live and work in the community. Maybe they're around kids a lot. Maybe it's a, a coach, for example, a little league coach or, uh, or, you know, a youth choir director at a church or whatever. What, what are the tells, if you will, to use, I used to live in Las Vegas. That's my uh, Vegas term in, in, in mm-hmm. playing cards. What are the tells, uh, of a kid that might benefit from play therapy? What should you watch for if you interact with children on a regular basis and you go, hmm, you know, because there's got to be a big difference, I would think, Beth, between a kid who just is generally quiet and shy and a kid that could really benefit from play therapy. So what are the tells? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, when we're dealing with rejection, usually is the core issue of what our our traumatized children are going through. Um, Rejection is huge. And so we're going to have children who might be just really quick to anger, really uh, impulsive, really physically violent to other children or self-harming to themselves, you know, where they'll beat their head against the wall or they're, um, you know, and those children are going to be quick to get your attention. You're going to go away. Like if you're a football coach and you've got a kid that is a great tackler, but doesn't know how to stop tackling. And then we'll start tackling when they're not supposed to tackle. Um, and, you know, so you'll see changes in children in whatever field you're in, whether you're a bus driver, your school teacher, your, you know, the lunchroom personnel, your the, the Sunday school teacher, whatever. Right. Um, you're going to in your field, you're going to see you're going to know a child and then you're going to see them get stressed or afraid. And you're going to see a very, very, very different child who does not have a capacity to. Um, rein that in. No amount of soothing is going to help them. Those are those are issues that are going to catch your attention quick. What often goes under noticed is going to be the child who internalizes. And this is the child who might have been talkative at one time and engaging with other children, and suddenly they just shut down. Uh, suddenly they put their head down on their desk in class. They are withdrawn on the playground. They do not want to talk to other people. Uh, They might start wearing their hair over their face, or they might start wearing long sleeves and hoods during the summertime, possibly covering bruises. Um, And they may be scared to death that if somebody finds out what's happening to them, their whole family is going to turn on them. And sadly, I have seen that happen. So, those children have to have our attention as well. So let's say for a very young child who was potty trained and all of a sudden we're not potty trained anymore. And that that's a very concerning thing that needs attention. Um, children who are becoming very upset at their stomachs more, you know, that they never had that problem before and now their stomachs are just constantly upset, constantly running to the bathroom or throwing up, not able to digest their food or even attempt to eat their food. These are things that we don't let go uh, un- unreported. Um, those are very important things. So the, the out loud uh, externalizers 
get all the attention. Um, but we got to think about those internalizers and what's going on with them and help them as well. So those are pretty good red flags to watch for. And you talked about how important it is to do play therapy for kids who might be in, in trouble when they're very young and how impressionable they are up to age five. Um, mm-hmm. is, is there an age where it's it's kind of too late and there's nothing you can do? I would, you know, you're talking to a therapist. I would never say that. We may never reach what that child's full potential could have been without trauma. Okay. That, that I will tell you, we may never get there in some children, but I think for all children, there is a way to be better. And I'm a big believer in post-traumatic growth. And so if I have a child who's been badly, badly traumatized, but we have supportive um, caregivers now, we are in safety, we are receiving treatment for dysregulated behaviors and depression, depression and anxiety could just go so hand in hand with these things. Um, and we have a lot of support for that child. The post-traumatic growth that they can learn is I'm a survivor and I'm not, I didn't just survive this. I am thriving. Uh, I have five-year-old little boys. I saw one last week and uh, he is so proud of himself because his foster parent reported, you know, he doesn't um, hit his little sister anymore when he's mad. He doesn't throw things and break things. And um, he's, he's, and I'm, I'm like, well, what do you do when you're angry? And he looked at me and he put his, he put his chest out. He was so proud. And he looked at me and he crossed those arms over his chest and he says, I stomp my feet and I yell. And I said, wow, that's really good. (laughs) That's really good. Now for some parents, they're, they're wanting this foot stomping and the yelling to stop. Right. But it's all relative. Where did they start and where are they right now? And the fact that he's that he's only five and he's doing so well and he's having consistent caregiving, which he never had before. You think about that. He never had it. Um, it's going to make all the difference in the world in this kiddo. So I'm very excited to see where he goes from here. Um, yeah. well, I'll tell you what you do just tugs at the heartstrings because you, you make a difference in so many kids' lives, especially by teaching these other therapists. Um, a couple of minutes left with Beth Hughes on the Big Time Talker podcast from the Power of Play Therapy Center back in West Virginia. Uh, you talked about depression in, in teens, and uh, it sure seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, but it sure seems like in the last, oh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, uh, medicating of America's children has become a thing that has taken off in leaps and bounds beyond where it once was. And I wonder, as somebody who works in that world, with kids who are, are truly traumatized, what you think the place of medication for kids is yeah it's uh i think it's way overused and i tell you burke especially in the um residential care facilities we have a huge problem with the over medication of children um I, I, it's and it's not unusual for me to get a child um i mean i've had a four-year-old on a billify before that was brought to me and a psychiatrist had put that little girl on a billify at four at four, which is a mood stabilizer. Um, so yes, we're going to have dysregulation go along with trauma. 
it's just what happens because again, that reptilian brain is activated. So, you know, the first thing we do is we have to achieve safety and I try to do it without medication that it's a last resort for me to say, Hey, we're going to have to have an antidepressant or a, you know, any anxiety medication just to help us. And usually I'll say it's just to help us through this rough spot. And then we're going to get, we're going to get away from this. Um, so some children, we have to have it just to get our work done in therapy. Um, but it, boy, I sure plan for that to be short term and very low dosed. Um, but, I, you know, depression in children is real. Uh, anxiety in children is real. And if it's at, to the point of, you know, they're, they're, they can't function in school or the other things that are required from them. Yeah, we may have to just do a touch of something for a little bit. But sadly, I've seen children who've been on maybe six or seven psychotropic medications for um, a couple of years. And they're very young children that I'm looking to change. Well, good for you, because I would think that you keep peeling back the layers on the onion in that situation to get to who the real kid is underneath all those drugs. How much difference has working in in a COVID atmosphere changed what you do? Because I I visualize you and have seen video of you sort of crawling around Mm -hmm. on the floor with kids and you guys are playing Mm -hmm. with dolls and puppets and, and all that. Um, I would imagine this has put a kink into the Power Play Therapy Center's way of doing things. Yeah, well, we're brave and probably somewhat stupid. Um, we, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we um, you know, we're working on our shots and getting vaccinated now. But, you know, before the vaccine was even, um, you know, was not even an option. We were, um, you know, when a child plays with a toy, we they throw it in a pile and that goes in the, in the bleach and, you know, and, and I had to space clients out so I could disinfect between each client. Of course, wear masks, uh, with, but with young children, it's very hard to wear a mask. So face shields. Um, so we, we have absolutely done the best we can. You know, I have children coming in that makes it, that means an adult's bringing them. So we don't let that adult back in the play area. Only one, uh, adult, one child at a time. So we've really, really like family sessions are not happening. That's really the only thing that's not happening uh, for me right now is the family sessions. But as far as individual therapy with traumatized children, I do see it as an essential service and we're just, we're just doing our best. Um, We've been very, very lucky. That's all I can tell you just the grace of God. That's all I can say. Uh, but we're trying very hard to be safe and follow, um, you know, the CDC requirements. There's been a lot of talk too, Beth, about how uh, the pandemic has affected uh, America's children, the world's children, because of their lack of interaction uh, with one another and in-person schooling. And And I know that's not exactly what you do, but certainly you deal with uh, hundreds, thousands of school-age kids between you and the therapists yeah. that you supervise and teach. And and I wonder just from a broad sense what your thoughts are on uh, how much damage you think is, has been done from these kids having a lost year. Yeah, well, you know, the studies are, are starting to filter out on that very question. And, you know, what I see anecdotally is that um, children need social engagement to learn so many critical things like self-regulation and impulse control and just learning to sit and be still 
and there is a time to to work and there is a time to play and we have this schedule and you know we start we start getting that and um the lack of the lack of that ability to go to physical school i believe is we're going to see some really tough outcomes uh for especially children who live in very marginal um situations you know right you know poverty stricken children who don't have access to um the internet uh who are getting more and more behind and you know that it's it's just awful the alternative is as i say to little children awfuler (laughs) it is you know, we, we can't yeah, have yeah. we can't have this. You know, we can't we have to have their we have to have them living. Right. Uh, but I see parents, especially grandparents. I work with a lot of children who are being raised by their grandparents or even great grandparents and not very tech savvy. And they're just struggling. So I guess my first concern is going to be about the lack of social interaction, which we need as human beings. Um, and especially children. So I'm, I'm very concerned about this. So if it's safe, your vote is get them back in the classroom as soon as it's Yeah. And you know, in Alabama, my, my grandsons have been in the classroom, um, and they keep them in these smaller pods and they really keep it disinfected and they keep those masks on and, and we've not had outbreaks. And of course they're in a rural school. Uh, public school and it's gone great um so but i know in big cities it's got to be just a tremendous public health issue uh for them so it just it depends on where you live and and what's possible and how committed people are to being safe you know as as you talk about that it, it makes me think that generally speaking as a generalization and those are always dangerous that that if things are pretty good at home, then you're probably okay with at-home schooling. If things are really bad at home, then it's probably mm-hmm. hell with at-home yeah, schooling. Yeah, right it now. is. Because I'm hearing of kids that are just not even logging on to classes, going weeks and weeks and not even logging on. Um, and, you know, there's no attendance director to to monitor that. There's there's not a lot we can do because we can't see each other in person. So it, we're really losing a lot of children, um, not just socially, but academically. So it's pretty, pretty scary thought. Hey, I want to wrap things up by, uh, by bragging on you a little bit. You have this really cool initiative that you started with the West Virginia power of play therapy center. It's been featured on TV and in newspapers and people just talk about it and it puts smiles on faces everywhere it goes and that is Ivy, your mobile play therapy bus. So for folks who are listening to the podcast, help them visualize what happens when Ivy rolls into Well, town. when Ivy, the, the play therapy bus, um, rolls into rural West Virginia, uh, usually some church has allowed me to use their parking lot and opens their bathroom up because Ivy doesn't have a bathroom, so we can watch. We and That's you, you better believe it. And so we, uh, but the child walks in. You know, I have these great folks, um, Rochelle and um, Mark Bolin, who transformed a 2005 15 passenger piece of junk 
uh, bus <laughs> into the most beautiful mobile play therapy unit you've ever seen. They just did a phenomenal job. Hearts of gold, these people. And um, children walk in, and I wish I could show you pictures of the look on their faces, and they know this is all for me. They know this is all for me. This is about me, and this is my safe place, and I can get my work done. And, you know, it's, there's only, you know, a handful of registered play therapists in the whole state of West Virginia, and they're not normally in rural southern West Virginia. So this brings it to them. This brings it to their their holler. And it, it is um, it's the most fun I've ever had. It's just wonderful. I, I'd love to post some photos of Ivy on our homepage for the, the podcast so people can see it. And just imagine that, you know, you bring the love and the help to these kids that can't make it to you. And you're going way back into some backwoodsy places there in Appalachia to bring that love. So hats off to you. Thank Good job, you, young lady. Thank you so much. Hey, give everybody the website address for the West Virginia Power of Play Therapy Center and also your phone number. We'll post sure. it. Sure. Well. It is um, BethHughes.org, and that's B-E-T-H-H-U-G-H-E-S.org. And you can reach West Virginia Power of Play Therapy by calling 304 304-946-5659. 304-946-5659. Five six five nine. Yeah. Very good. If you'd like to find out more about how you can get involved or maybe help a child or help a therapist get this uh, very important training, then reach out to Beth and she'll take care of you. Hey, thanks for spending hey, some time. Hey, Bert, with us my today. pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again, buddy. There's one of the people out there in the world doing the good stuff, Beth Hughes with the West Virginia Power of Play Therapy Center. Thank you for listening. Thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for sponsoring the show. Now, wherever you are, whatever you do, go out and make it a great day. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>